beginning a new series. James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Amen. Father God, we do desire to let patience have its perfect work. We do desire to be mature, to be complete in you. And I pray that as I preach, you would keep my lips from uh, speaking error, that you would anoint me to teach and anoint each one of us to hear and to rejoice in your word, Father. Receive our worship as we continue to uh, worship through meditating on your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> well, as soon as we get into this book, we're hit with a puzzle, and the puzzle is, who is this James? Which of the Jameses in the Bible is uh, writing this? He simply says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to me, it's part of the fun of studying a book, is uh, finding out a little bit more about the author, because even in terms of the timing in an author's life when he wrote it, sometimes impacts how you interpret uh, the, uh, the book. And there are plenty of hints as to who this author is. There have been people who have disagreed down through the years, especially the Roman Catholic Church, because they don't think that Jesus had a brother. But there have been some pro Protestants as well. Uh, but most evangelicals believe that the author of this book was James, the brother of Jesus. And it's interesting, even some liberals who used to date it in 125 A.D., they've been forced by the evidence to say, hey, this had to have been written, you know, 48 A.D. in that range. And, uh, yeah, there does seem to be evidence it was James, uh, the brother of Jesus. And I'm not going to bore you with all of the details on this, but I do want to give you a few hints and the first hint is found in that word scattered in verse 1. Uh, the Greek word is diaspora, and uh, that word can be used in a couple of different ways. For example, the Jews who had long ago, you know, from Babylon on, had been scattered throughout the nations, they were spoken of as the diaspora. Now, the problem with that is that the writer here is very clearly writing to Christians throughout the book, and they're Jewish Christians throughout the book. And so the question comes, was there ever a Christian diaspora? And there were two times where that was true. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 8, and uh, we'll look at the first one. And if you want to mark out the time frame here, uh, Acts chapter 8 is 35 A.D., and it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, and it's referring to Stephen there. At that time there was a great persecution, excuse me, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, there's the word, diaspora, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And uh, so that's the earliest that this uh, book could be written. Uh, first time that Christian Jews were scattered throughout the region. If you look over at chapter 12, there are other people who say, well, it's probably the diaspora in chapter 12. Um, and in the first verse, it says, now about that time, and that time would be 44 A.D., now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, if this 
passage is the beginning point of the diaspora that he is talking about, then it rules out James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, as being the author. But it's not conclusive because there are many people who think, no, it, it really could be earlier. But at least that gives you a time frame. That's um, 44 A.D., <clears throat> two places where, uh, where this could be written. Okay, another hint uh, that we have is that <clears throat> this uh, James seems to imply that he is still in Jerusalem in verse 1. Virtually everyone agrees that the scattering abroad is being scattered from Jerusalem out into the uh, surrounding regions. But the way it's written, the implication is that this James is still in Jerusalem and he is writing to people who used to be under his care, people who knew him, uh, people that he had previously had a pastoral relationship with. Now, that all of a sudden gives a huge hint as to who this is, and I think that all of these hints point in the same direction. That brings up the third hint. Was there some prominent James in Jerusalem? The reason I say prominent is that this author expects the people to know exactly who he is, uh, just to be able to say, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to figure out, and, and that he's writing from Jerusalem, they're going to figure out immediately who this James is. Um, the rest of the New Testament makes it pretty clear that James, the brother of the Lord, was the leader in Jerusalem uh, from at least Acts 9 and onward, uh, Gal uh, Galatians 1, verse 19, which was around the time of um, Paul's conversion, it indicated that uh, his leadership was already uh, recognized. Uh, in Galatians 2, verse 9, he is called one of the three pillars of the church of Jerusalem, along with Cephas and John, and his name comes first again. But he's called a pillar. He's identified in Galatians 1, 19 as the brother of Jesus our Lord, uh, the risen Lord made a special appearance to James, his brother, uh, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. And by the way, if you're doing a biography on him, it's always fun to take a, a, a guy in the Scripture and look up every passage that the Scripture even remotely talks about him and try to write up a little biography on that character. It's uh, really a, a profitable study. But that's probably when he got converted in 30 A.D., and so, whereas the other Jameses are spoken of as James, the son of so-and-so, this James is simply called in the New Testament James. There usually aren't any other appellations put with him. He's just the James. Uh, from Acts 12 on, and probably from Acts 19 on, based on Galatians 1.19, he's the leader in Jerusalem. And so he doesn't need to specify which James. They're going to know immediately which is the one that has authority there. Uh, everyone um, assumes he's the James that's the most prominent person in Acts 12, Acts 15, Acts 21. Okay, fourth hint. He needs to be a James that has authority not only over Jews in Jerusalem, but also over Jews who are scattered wherever. And uh, Paul, again, talks in Galatians 2, verse 9, of James, Peter, and John having that kind of authority. Fifth, the language that's used in this epistle of James is, it's uncanny how close to the language in Acts chapter 15 with the speech of James, the brother of Jesus, as well as the letter that went out under his authority that many people assume that he drafted uh, representing the, the General Assembly. Mayer in his commentary, he lists a big, long list of of uh, similarities in speech between the two. For example, the only other time in the in the Bible where an apostle uses the kind of greeting that is used here. It's used in Acts 15. And the, the strange word for greetings, literally that word greetings means rejoice. 
uh, that's the literal meaning. The only other time that that is used by an apostle, that's used in Acts 15 as well. And there's a number of other unusual words. Flip over to Jude. Jude, the first verse. And this was written by another brother of Jesus. Jesus had four brothers. He had some sisters. And uh, he begins with exactly the same language as James starts with, but with one addition, he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so he links himself with the brother uh, of, the, of the Lord, prominent uh, a brother. Now, some people have said, well, if he was the brother of Jesus, why didn't he say so? Wouldn't that have cleared up the, the fact? Well, I think he leaves that out for a very obvious reason. Christ had insisted that flesh and blood avails nothing, you know, with him. Who is my mother? Who is my brother and my sisters? Those who do the will of God. And so he does not highlight that as all as if that would pull any strings. It would pull no strings in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to uh, bore you with all of the details, but many authors are dogmatic that the evidence simply does not fit any other author. I'm not sure you could be as dogmatic as some of them are, but anyway, New Geneva Study Bible says it is almost certain that the author of this book is James, uh, the brother of Jesus. So I just wanted you to know up front, through the rest of the series, I'm going to be assuming the authorship is by him. Now, James is a fascinating book for a number of reasons, and one of them has already been hinted at, that this is the first book to have been written in the New Testament. Uh, whether you take the beginning point of this as being A.D. 35 or A.D. 44, it doesn't matter. There weren't any other New Testament books that were written that early. Uh, virtually everybody agrees. This is the first New Testament book uh, to have been written. And uh, uh, that gives you uh, a number of fascinating glimpses into the early church. It gives you a glimpse of what the church looked like before the Gentiles began pouring in. See, I think um, the fact that there are no Gentiles mentioned in here, there's no controversy mentioned over circumcision, most scholars believe that that almost certainly rules out an Acts 15 date. So that Acts 15 would be uh, 48 or 49 A.D., so you've got the earliest 35, the latest would be 48 or 49. That's a 13-year period, a window of time that you're talking about. But the fact that no Gentiles are mentioned, despite the fact they're out there where the Gentiles are, seems to indicate that, that uh, this book was written probably, you know, in the ch Acts chapter 8 through Acts chapter 12, somewhere in that uh, period of time, around the 35, 36, 37 A.D. Uh, period. Now, to me, this gives a fascinating glimpse into what the church looked like. There's a lot of so-called uh, messianic congregations in, in America. And uh, if you really want to look at what a Jewish congregation would look like, look in the book of James. And I think it is quite different than the messianic congregations that you see. This book settles many controversies that rage on the nature of the church, um, you know, continuity from Old Testament to New Testament, the application of the law and the society as well as in the church, a whole bunch of different issues. I think it's a fantastic book for bringing a corrective to American Christianity. So, with that as a background, you immediately know it was written during a time of fiery persecution. Both Saul and Herod were trying to exterminate the church, completely stamp it out. And this author, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is trying to bring uh, consolation. And I want you to notice, first of all, that James does not elevate himself in a pompous way. Instead, he does the exact opposite. 
He puts himself down, as it were. Now, if you believe that this is the Apostle John, he doesn't emphasize that fact. He simply says, hey, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's even more remarkable if he is Jesus' brother. If there would be anything from the flesh that he could appeal to as to why he ought to be the top dog, it would be the fact that he was related to Jesus. He was kin. He was flesh and blood. But to him, that is utterly, utterly irrelevant. Now, James had achieved a great degree of notoriety. Uh, It must have been an incredible leader, tremendous skills. But, you know, the things that are mentioned about him in church history is he had a tremendous servant's heart, tremendous humility, tremendous godliness, tremendous prayer life, and uh, yet he does not um, uh, use the, the notoriety that he has Uh, to promote himself. He had such a knowledge of the law that they called him James the Just. Uh, Early church historian, Hegesippus, who wrote in 175 A.D. So that's pretty early historian, right? Uh, He said James spent so much time on his knees that his knees looked like camel's knees. Okay, so he was a tremendous prayer warrior. Even Josephus, who is an unbeliever, Josephus, who wrote the histories, you know, in the first century, he mentions James, the brother of Jesus, And he said that he was so respected amongst the Jews that uh, they mourned him when he was martyred, when he was slain in 62 A.D. at Ananias the high priest's uh, command. Uh, They recognized him as an incredibly holy man, as a man given to prayer. And so here's a man who's got influence even among secular Jews, and yet as he introduces himself, he sees himself only as a servant of Jesus. And really, ultimately... None of us are anything apart from Christ. None of us are anything apart from Him. In Christ's kingdom, influence and leadership comes through service, right? He who serves the most is the leader of the most, according to Christ. And he who serves the least should not be recognized as a leader. And so, even though in this book it's clear he's got authority, how does he address himself to the the brethren in in verse 2? You know, it's my brother's. My brothers, my brethren. Now, there's a little bit more in verse 1 I want to look at, and uh, that's the phrase to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. It's an incredibly Jewish book, and it should not be surprising because it was written during a period of time when there were hardly any Gentiles who had come into the church yet. Uh, It's not going to be surprising to, to see the way in which uh, he ties the Old Testament with the New Testament almost entirely a Jewish remnant. By the way, they saw themselves as being the true Israel, the remnant of Israel. Uh, Paul was probably not converted yet, uh, or if he had been, he hadn't probably been converted very long. Cornelius may not have even been converted yet. For James, the church is Israel. Israel is the church. Uh, He sees a tight correspondence between the Old Testament people and the New Testament people, between the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. Uh, In fact, he uses the term synagogue to describe the gatherings of the people. If you look at chapter 2, verse 2, it says, For if there should come into your assembly, well, the literal Greek is, if there should come into your synagogue, into your synagogue. James knows absolutely nothing about the dispensational theology of two purposes and two peoples. Nothing whatsoever of it. In fact, he is going to fight diametrically opposed to that if it had come up. Uh, you'll see all through as we go through this book. Um, Christian Jews, he saw, as the true Israel. 
Uh, and any other interpretation, I think, does violence to the New Covenant. If you flip just a few pages back to Hebrews chapter 8, and uh, we won't read the whole section, 7 through 13, but um, he, he bases his theology of the New Covenant upon Jeremiah, and he quotes it at length twice, and he refers to it other times, <clears throat> but he makes clear that that covenant was made with Israel. For if that, this is beginning at verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been found for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Doesn't mention in that passage anything about the Gentiles. And so the question comes up, how do we Gentiles get into the new covenant if the new covenant was made with Israel? And I would say it's the same way that the Jews the apostate Jews got into the covenant when John the Baptist was preaching to them. Remember a few weeks ago we saw John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance. It was proselyte baptism. He was treating them as Gentiles, as pagans. You're outside the covenant. If you want to come into the covenant, get baptized, repent. And then you can be part of the new Israel, the remnant of Israel that God is developing. And that's all that the, the apostles uh, were continuing on. And so we come in the same way they did. Now, I'm emphasizing this point because it makes a huge difference in your interpretation whether you see Israel and synagogue as replaced by something brand new, the church of the Gentiles, or whether you see the church of the New Testament as having continuity with the people of the Old Testament, whether the, the Israel was being purified. It had been purified many times in the Old Testament as well. There were times where God says, hey, the remnant over here is Israel. You're Sodom. You're Gomorrah. He would refuse to call them Israel, but he called the remnant Israel. That's exactly uh, what he is doing here. Galatians 6, verse 16, refers to the church as being the Israel of God. And, you know, this book of James, it gave Martin Luther heartburn because it was so Jewish. He was trying to interpret it in a Greek way, but it really is Jewish through and through, and I think we misinterpret it if we don't understand it through uh, Jewish eyes. James' whole point in this book is that Israel is not truly Israel if it does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If the Jews reject their Messiah, they cannot claim to be truly Jews. That's why Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. That's why Revelation 2 verse 9 says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Sure, they go to a synagogue. Sure, they're in Israel, but, you know, they're not really Jews, is what he's saying. That's why Revelation 3, 9 says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. And so we need to get used to thinking that God does not have two brides. He's got one bride, one people, one temple, one vineyard, one olive tree. What are some of the other illustrations? There's a ton of illustrations that he gives, and they're always one. God does not have uh, two peoples. He's got one olive tree into which Gentiles are engrafted, out of which unbelieving Jews are broken. Later, they'll be engrafted back in. But there is only uh, one Israel, and it's the true people of God down through history. Now, and, and by the way, they're scattered abroad for a good reason, because what God wants Gentiles to be engrafted into the church. They're, they're scattered for a reason. Now, just so that you can see that there is absolutely no tension between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 2. And as we go through this book, I'm going to be demonstrating that um, 
Paul and James see eye to eye. They see eye to eye on justification. They see eye to eye on who are the people of God, the relationship of Old Covenant to the New Covenant. They see eye to eye. So take a look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, and let's begin at verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh... Now that word once in the Greek is pata. It means once, but no longer. Okay? They were once Gentiles in the flesh. They're no longer Gentiles in the flesh. Okay, let's read that again. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time... What time was it? When they were... When they were Gentiles in the flesh, right? That's the time he's referring to. That at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Near to what? They had been strangers from the covenants of promise, strangers to Israel, Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, now they've been brought near. Take a look at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So again... There's one people, one building, one temple, and then he says there's one Israel, and we are no longer strangers from that Israel. We are fellow citizens, uh, uh, fellow citizens with them. Now, somebody objection. He says oh, that's impossible. How can Gentiles become Jews? Jewishness is ethnic. It is essentially ethnic. It has to be. And I would say, no, that's not true. That's not true. All you have to do is look at Esther 8, verse 17, and it says there, then many of the people of the land became Jews. Jewishness was never ethnic. Now, there was an ethnic issue because the church primarily was there, but anyone could become a Jew. Otherwise, we're in trouble right off the bat in Genesis 17 when God made his covenant with Abraham. When, when God had him circumcised the 318 uh, servants and their families, and he brought them into the covenant, was he related to them? No. But they had adopted, they had embraced the religion of Abraham, and so they were welcomed into the covenant. And all down through history, you see that there was not an ethnic issue. In fact, even in the Abrahamic covenant, it says, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so you've got Rahab the harlot. She's a Canaanite. You've got Caleb the Kenite. You know, who's, uh, boy, he's one of the heroes, you know, of the faith of the Israelites there. And he receives property and everything, but he was a Kenite. He was not an Israelite, uh, but he was a descendant of Abraham. But it was one of the other children did not come through Jacob. And you've got many other examples. So, again, we need to realize Jewishness was a religious issue. It was not primarily an ethnic issue. And so, in the same way, the church of the New Testament was the new Israel. And the only way anybody can be related to God is as he embraces the God of Israel, as he's incorporated into Israel, his church. That's why Jesus, when he gave his last supper with his disciples, he says, you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I am bestowing on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, that you may eat and drink at my table. Okay, we're talking about communion here. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
See, Jesus, James, Paul, they all see a continuity between the Old Testament people and the New Testament people. He's talking here about the church. And uh, we'll be seeing the implications of that. Okay, back to James. In his greeting, uh, James immediately sets up an acknowledgement that they are suffering, that they're scattered abroad, but the first words out of his mouth to these suffering Christians is a very interesting greeting. As I mentioned earlier, the word for greeting literally means rejoice. And then he goes on to show why we can rejoice even in the toughest of circumstances that are thrown at us. As Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. James here says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, there are going to be four key words you're going to find in this book. Joy, rejoice, and then the, uh, the next word that you're going to see is patience, and then perfect. And the word perfect can mean mature. But one of the evidences of maturity is that the Christian, even he can walk in the joy of the Lord and maintain that joy in the Lord even when life is not fair with him. Even when the boss chews him out for something he did not do or the wife chews him out or the husband chews her out, you know. He says you can maintain that joy. Every Christian goes through trials. They don't have to be trials of persecution like this Christian was, uh, uh, these Christians were facing in order for you to be robbed of your joy. Uh, I've seen Christians robbed of joy just because there was a little disagreement, you know, that they had and they become so sour, you know, or a headache or, you know, period or... There's any number of things that rob Christians of their joy. And he says, hey, I'm going to give you seven steps by which if you implement these steps, you can have joy no matter what your difficult circumstances may be. Seven key concepts. And the first one is the discipline of your mind. Now, we're going to spend a bit of time on this because this is the hardest one to put a handle around. And I think it's the most important one. It's really, really critical that we discipline our minds. He tells us, count it all joy. Some translate that, consider it all joy. And if you look at verse 3, he says, knowing, so there's your mind in gear again, knowing certain things. Now, what we think with our minds makes a huge difference as to whether or not we have this joy. As J. Adams says, the mature Christian sees something in the trial that the immature Christian completely misses. We tend to fill our minds with all of the reasons why this is a lousy, dirty, stinking, rotten, bum deal, right? And God says the mature Christian fills his mind with why this is not only a good deal, but why it is a basis for unmixed joy, as one translation has it, or pure joy, as another translation has it, all joy, not part joy and half, you know, part uh, misery, but he says all joy. My brethren, count it all or pure or unmixed joy when you fall into various trials. Now, how in the world are you supposed to count some trial that is messing up your life and making everything go wrong? How in the world are you supposed to count that a joy? Well, let me try to illustrate for you. <clears throat> when I was growing up in Ethiopia, there was a mountain range behind uh, our house, and uh, my brothers and I... Um, made a trek up there. It was an all-day trek, and we started back a little bit late, so we were hurrying to get back, and then the fog closed in, so we got lost. And we were wandering around, having to backtrack, going down uh, blind uh, trails, and we were getting a little bit concerned because darkness was coming on, and uh, we were worried that the animals, we'd be out on the mountain with the animals <laughs> all by ourselves. And my brothers recognized one spot where they said, Ah, I know this path. We're on the right way. And so we started running down the mountain. 
very stupid, silly thing to do. But as we were running down the mountain, I tripped over something, skinned my knees and my, my, my elbows up, something fierce, and I was rubbing myself and bemoaning this and just feeling really sorry for myself. And my brothers came up and they were commiserating with me. And all of a sudden, the fog lifted and I looked and there was a few feet ahead was a cliff we would have run right over and my brothers would have run over and been killed for sure if I had not fallen down. Now, all of a sudden, I was elated. You know, this falling down was the greatest thing in the world, you know. I, I just had unmixed joy. There was something great about that falling. Now, nothing different had happened in my circumstances from the time that I had unmixed misery and I was just feeling sorry and grumpy about this to the time that I had full elation except for the fact I now knew something about my circumstances that I had not known before because now the fog is lifted. Well, what James is going to say in this book is there are many times where the fog is in our lives and we don't know what in the world God is doing with us. Lord, I don't have a foggiest notion what you're doing. But James encourages us to say, discipline your minds. Make sure you are driven by the promises of Scripture. Make sure you are driven by the descriptions of your environment that the Scripture gives that all things work together for your good. Otherwise, those things may rob you of your joy, but there's no need to. If you discipline your mind, you can face those trials with real confidence. I remember as a child thinking it awful strange that Ethiopians would always ask for injections rather than pills. I, man, I'd take a pill any day when I was a kid. But they were always begging for injections, even when they didn't need it. We didn't have the medicine to give it. And so sometimes you had to give them a water injection and the pills, and they were delighted. You know, they were just thrilled. But what you think about something can turn something painful into something joyful. In fact, when my dad would go on trek, he always took his, um, his uh, dental pliers and all those kinds of things with him. And I remember I hated going to the dentist. But I remember just watching with fascination at people jumping for joy because there was somebody to pull out their painful teeth. Uh, they knew the miserable alternative of having the witch doctor breaking and chipping it out with a, a, a hammer and nail. That's the way they did it. You know, they would break it and gouge and try to get the, uh, the roots out that way. When a lady goes through labor, nobody likes that. You know, I mean, there's, it's painful. It's, it's not fun. But there is something joyful about that labor as well. And so he's wanting us to say, don't think about the glass being half empty. Be thinking about all of the positive things that God is doing through your circumstances. Let me read you a verse from Peter that will help you with this word consider. First Peter, again, is a book that deals with suffering. But in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with this mind. Now, he says arm yourselves because it's going to be a struggle. Your mind does not want to go along with what you're doing. And your mind wants to go into negative thinking. And that negative thinking, you know, sends you into uh, uh, bad feelings. And then the bad feelings make you think even more negative. And you go down this downward spiral until you're finally so depressed uh, you can't stand it. And he says, no, arm yourselves. And James uses a Greek word that's very, very similar. The word consider there, its primary usage is, if you look it up in a dictionary, it's not ordinarily used to consider or to um, uh, count it, you know, in terms of, of your mind. That's a secondary usage. First usage is to lead, to lead something. The secondary usage, consider, count, or regard, comes from the idea of leading oneself 
to think. Leading one's thoughts. Just like you'd lead a mule or you'd lead a, a horse along. You're saying to your thoughts, get out of there. You're not going to be mucking around in all of this swamp of self-pity, you know, and bitter thoughts. Get out of there. We're going to think about something positive. So you're leading yourself to think is one way that this could be translated. And I tell you, the pagan cesspool of bitter and gloomy thoughts is where many Christians find themselves hours at a time when somebody has abused them, somebody has troubled them. And what he says, you've got to discipline your mind. Send it over here. Uh, but your mind just tends to wander right back. And you've got to pull it, pull it back and thinking positive thoughts about God and His promises. And your mind's going to wander back. He says, it's going to be a struggle, but you've got to lead it. You've got to lead it and discipline it. And you know, Olympians do this all the time. Uh, why do Olympians go through the pain and the inconvenience of their daily preparation? I mean, to me, that seems miserable. I'm not even motivated by Olympic medal. Of course, I, my body couldn't do it anyway. <laughs> but that just seems miserable. But they do it because they consider the results worthwhile, right? They are fixing their minds on something that makes even the practice seems joyful. And my guess is that some of you have allowed your minds to wander in the swamps more than they should have. And that's because you have not been considering all of the joyful reasons why God has brought this into your life. In fact, I've given a handout. It's not the outline. There should be a second sheet in your, in your worship notes, and there's extras on the back. Uh, but it's uh, a summary of a long article called Sufferology. What a great word. Uh, the doctrine of suffering, right? Sufferology. <laughs> um, it's not a real word, but he made it up. And in there, he gives you all kinds of reasons why suffering is a blessing in the life of a Christian. And you can add things. It's probably not an exhaustive list, but it could at least get you started on, on the right track. Okay, the second step is a little easier to understand, so I'm not going to spend much time on that. It is that we should not deliberately seek trouble. Now, in the, in the first century, there were, a, and actually second and third century, there were a lot of Christians who sought out trouble. They had put before their minds all of the glories of martyrdom, and that's kind of a good thing, but they had focused so much on the glories of martyrdom, they literally threw themselves upon officials to get martyred. They wanted to be martyred. They turned themselves in to get martyred. And, and James is saying, no, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Not when you throw yourselves in, okay? When you fall into trials. And um, in, in uh, Peter, 1 Peter 4, it says, if we suffer for our sins, then that's our own fault. You should feel miserable. You should sorrow over it and repent over that, right? And uh, I knew a Christian once who blamed all of his persecution upon the fact that he was a Christian. You know, I looked at his life and... It had nothing to do with the fact he was a Christian. It had to do with the fact he was a jerk, you know? That's why he was getting persecuted all the time. And so basically what he is saying is, don't call on trouble, okay? You try to avoid trouble if you can, but if God has providentially made it impossible, you're falling into it. That's another thing. But we bring many of our own miseries on ourselves. The third key is that we need to stretch our faith, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We need to see the trials that God is bringing into our lives as trials that come from a schoolmaster or a coach, an Olympic coach, okay, who's training us. He does not want us to get flabby. And he wants to see whether we're ready to handle new responsibilities and new blessings that he wants to pour into our lives. He's constantly testing what area of development are we at. 
And by the way, trials is only one of those tests. There's gazoodles of tests that the Lord brings and integrity checks into our lives. If we don't respond rightly by passing the test, hey, we go right back to school. We learn the lessons over again. He tests us again and he tests us again. But I think it takes faith to believe God's hand is in absolutely everything and that Romans 8.28 is true, that God has a good purpose for everything. And so James says we can be joyful when we know this is a testing of our faith. And secondly, it produces something good within us. And I think as we stretch our faith in those areas and we respond appropriately to those testings, God ushers us into more and more blessings and maturity and causes the joy to flow. A fourth key to having joy in trials is to develop patience or endurance. Now, when an athlete begins to really stretch their body, seems like beyond endurance, many times it's it is painful. Now, I'm not an athlete, so I, I'm, I'm sure I cannot 100% relate and relate even to getting the, the Olympic medal. But I was very, very motivated when I was in college in algebra to work hard at one of my sports. Uh, we had to take a sport every year. And the previous year, I had taken football. And uh, I, I didn't like it too swell. Um, and in fact, that was a... <laughs> that was an, you know, an understatement. I hated it because we played in five degree weather, 10 degree weather. And every time, you know, we were busting up against the, the line that was in front of us, I, I felt like some frozen body part had snapped off. I'd always be feeling my ears, you know, to see if they were there. So the next year I decided this is nuts. I am not going to play football. So I went on to track and uh, it was long distance running. And the first day that I was sitting there, I'd been uh, trying out for track, the coach looks at my bow legs, I'm bow-legged, and he starts laughing. He says, Kaiser, what are you doing here? Get out of here. The only thing your legs are good for is standing in a circus. And I didn't say anything, but I decided I'll show him. And <laughs> it may have been pride, call it what you will, but boy, was I motivated. And there was a class of about 30 uh, long-distance runners, and I started off just trailing the people. But I worked. I worked my tail off uh, during that time. And by the end of the semester, I was the fourth uh, fastest. The other ones just left me in the dust. But I was the fourth fastest uh, in the class. But when I was starting, I was pushing myself so hard, I thought I was going to die. My lungs felt like they were bleeding. You know, I just... I, I, it, was, it was sheer torture. But I finally got to the place where I got what runners call that, uh, you know, that uh, runner's rush, that euphoria. And it was so delightful. Once I experienced that, I looked forward to running. It was a delight to run. But let me tell you, it took some endurance. It took some patience to get to that place where I had that. And in the spiritual realm, before you can get to the euphoria of spiritual joy in the midst of trials, you have to endure. You have to keep at it. Um, one of the illustrations that I sometimes use with counselees who are really being discouraged with being motivated is I, I set before them some of the results they've got to look at, but I also use the illustration of the uh, compounding growth of the doubling of the penny. And you've all had that illustration in, in math class, and I've probably given it two or three times before. But which would you rather get paid? $1,000 a day for a month, or would you rather get paid a penny on day one, two pennies on day two, 
four pennies on day three, eight pennies on day four, 16 pennies on day five, and keep doubling it every day. Well, if you know anything about math, you know you're going to take the multiplying penny because you're going to get millions of dollars by the end of the month. But it takes a while for it to get going anywhere, doesn't it? And that's the way it feels in the spiritual arena. Some of these people, you know, they're working at trying to overcome a besetting sin or they're working on some area of discipline and they've worked at it for a whole week, you know, maybe five days and they say, this is ridiculous. I am pouring all kinds of energy and sweat and I'm only getting 16 cents back for my labors. And Satan tempts them, says, it's not worth it, is it, Kaiser? Kaiser says, no, it's not worth it. And so you sin and you go back three or four days and then you feel guilty before the Lord and you say, okay, well, I better do this anyway. And you go forward and then it's just not paying anything. You go back and you go forward and you go back. And after a while, it's just like, hey, Lord, you've promised multiplied blessings in my life and it is not happening. All I'm getting paid ever is eight cents, 16 cents, you know, and I'm sweating blood and tears to do this stuff. And the Lord is saying, yeah, you're not enduring. That's your problem. You don't have the patience to carry you through. As you get into week two and week three, there's enormous blessings that come into your lives. And that really is the way it is uh, spiritually. We've got to have, we've got to have that endurance. And uh, so <clears throat> in order to enter into this runner's euphoria, patience or endurance. Now, this is actually part of the next point. The fifth essential step is to say no to the present orientation of our fleshly desires and to say yes to the future orientation of the godly mind. Verse 4 says, but let patience have its perfect work. There's going to be this constant struggle between what you want to do right now and what you want to do in the future. There's going to be that constant struggle back and forth. And if you are present-oriented, the future will not drive your behavior. You will never mature. In fact, you'll never succeed at anything in life. You're not going to see, succeed financially unless it's just given to you in a, you know, in a sweepstakes or something like that. But you're not going to succeed financially or in any other area. And if you do not understand the concept of future orientation and how it makes such a difference in our outlook on life, I'd encourage you to uh, get the tape from the Prosperity and Poverty series that, that is devoted to that. But what's going to happen until the flesh is crucified and weakened, it's going to be crying out at every step of the way, please, let's take a rest. You say no. He says, why not? You deserve it. I'm not listening to you, flesh. Get behind me, flesh. And he says, oh, you are listening to me. You know how painful this is. You need to stop. And you're saying no so that you can say yes to patience having its perfect work within you. Okay, and as your lungs start to ache, you know, spiritually speaking, you wish you could be a couch potato like millions of others, you are driven by the realization of what is before you. That's the difference between the mature Christian and James and the immature Christian. The immature Christian has flabby spiritual muscles because every time the spiritual coach says, here's an exercise, oh, I can't do it, you know, I just, it's too miserable. You've not set before your eyes why it's reasonable to do that. And by the way, if you have not learned to say no to your daily struggles in your flesh, you know, the easy things, you're never going to be able to say no when the big crunch comes. You know, there were little timid girls who successfully faced torture, faced the lions, faced the arena where strong men uh, crumbled and the reason probably was that that girl had learned to say no on a daily basis 
uh, in her lives. We've got to learn the disciplines of denying our flesh on a daily basis and being future-oriented before we're going to on uh, the long haul. Okay, let's see here. This brings up the sixth uh, step. We need to make sure that our goal in life is not comfort, but holiness. And your goal is going to make all the difference in the world because if your goal is to be comfortable, it's not going to make any sense in the world. In fact, it's going to be irrational to say no to your flesh right now. If your goal is comfort, why are you denying your present comfort? That doesn't make any sense. But if your goal is holiness, then then it's going to cause you to say, anyway, look at verse 4. It says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That should be our goal, conformity to the image of the Jesus Christ. So again, if, you're, if your goal is to be comfortable, you're going to be discouraged every step of the way, disappointed every step of the way. But if your goal is to be holy, nothing can disappoint you because absolutely everything God brings into your life is performing that, is bringing you into conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not a big Larry Crabb fan, but he's written some good stuff. And in one of his books, he said something rather shocking. He said, a man opened a counseling session with an urgent request. I want to feel better quick. I paused for a moment, then replied, well, I suggest you get a case of your favorite alcoholic beverage, find some cooperative women, and go to the Bahamas for a month. Now it was his turn to, be, to pause. He stared at me, looking puzzled, and then asked, are you a Christian? Why do you ask? Well, your advice doesn't sound very biblical. Well, that's the best I can do, given your request. If you really want to feel good right away and get rid of any unpleasant emotion, then I don't recommend following Christ. Drunkenness, immoral pleasures, and vacations will work far better. Not for long, of course, but in the short run, they'll give you just what you want. And he continues, Preachers all across America are building huge congregations on the promise of unblemished happiness now. Our modern understanding of Christian joy envisions an eager excitement as we face each day, yielding to a serene warmth in older years capped off with the bliss of heaven forever. The biblical writers see things differently. And I would have to agree. I'd have to agree. We are a society that is just bent on avoiding any pain, whether it's through medicine or whatever. We're, we want to be pain-free, problem-free, risk-free, and all of our solutions are bent on changing the problem, changing the environment rather than changing us. Whereas God says in this chapter that he is more concerned about changing you than he is about changing your trial. In fact, he's the one who brought your trial. He's going to keep bringing that trial because he wants to change you. He's not interested in changing your circumstances. He's interested in changing you. And your circumstances change as you change. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> Jonah thought he could short-circuit the process and avoid the pain of going to Nineveh. Just made it worse for himself, didn't he? Could have been so much easier. One of the most misquoted verses in this regard is Romans 8.28. And it's not misquoted in terms of word-for-word -word quote. It's misquoted because it's taken out of context. They say, all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. But their mind is thinking, all things work together for my comfort. But that is not what Romans 8.28 says. Uh, Romans 8.28, in the context, it tells the kinds of things that are working together for our good, and it speaks of groanings, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. And then he says about all of those things, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
See, God is for you in those frustrations and trip trials. Never forget that. It's because He loves you, He's not going to remove the trials until you learn the lesson that those trials are seeking to bring into you. If it's not conforming you to the image of Christ, He's not going to let up on it because He lets up on it. You're just going to be flabby for the Olympics. You're not going to make it. Psalm 119 says, It was good for me that I have been afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. He's saying before I was afflicted, I was just doing my own thing. He says, but the affliction brought a discipline into my life that was conforming me to the image of Christ. And so the first thing you need to do is make sure you have the right goal. Make sure your goal is God's goal for you. And God's goal is conformity to the image of Christ. The last realization that can help us to have joy is that God will provide absolutely everything we need to handle the problem in a godly way. Last three words there, complete, lacking nothing. Complete, lacking nothing. Second uh, Peter chapter 1 tells us that His divine power and His Word has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says that God has given to us sufficient so that the man of God can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ephesians 1 says He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The point being, He's not shortchanged you. He's not shortchanging. He's given you everything. In fact, he is more motivated than you are to grow in holiness and to grow into maturity. He wants you. He's provided everything that you need to grow in and you can make it if you will arm yourself with the mind of Christ and have the patience uh, to allow patience to have its perfect work. Now, I'm going to end with an exercise that can be kind of a thermometer as to where you are in your preparation for the Olympics. And it's a very simple exercise. All you have to do is the next trial that comes along, thank God for that trial. And if you cannot thank God with a sincere heart for that trial, you've still got a, quite a ways to go. So that can be an exercise. That's a biblical exercise. People think, you know, how can I sincerely thank God? Well, if you've been hearing the rest of the sermon, there's all kinds of reasons to thank Him. But 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in everything. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it may seem strange at first, but the, sometimes you will feel the very act of thanking God, spending maybe two, three minutes thanking God for this trial, begins to arouse that joy within you. Because why? The thanking of God is an act of faith. In fact, Mr. Howell and I were talking about this earlier. It makes you look at the circumstance in a different way. And that looking at it in a different way brings that joy into your lives. And so that's what I want to encourage you this morning, that you can face your trials without gloom. You can do so with the joy of the Lord, and may each one of you do so. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would quicken this word to our hearts and not allow it to be plucked up by Satan or in any way to wither in the heat of the sun, but I pray that it would produce its uh, fruit in our lives. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.